0: Hi, my name is Laura Lopez Hoffman, and this is Behind the Beaker.
1: Hello, and welcome science listeners. I'm Jillian Barch, your host and assistant science editor for the Daily Wildcat. And you are listening to Behind the Beaker, a Daily Wildcat science podcast. Today, we talk with Laura Lopez Hoffman about her research with NEPA.
0: I am an environmental scientist. And I bring the methods of science and the scientific method to bear on environmental policy and law. All right. And then what led to you going into the
1: field of natural resources?
0: So I started off my career as a uh, ecologist. I studied plants and then animals. That was uh, kind of a long line of ecologists in my family. And people working in conservation dating back to the mid 1800s, so it was sort of you know something that was talked about all the time growing up, um, and so it was just sort of obvious that's what I was going to what I was going to do.
1: Very cool. Um, so what is NEPA, and why is it the foundational environmental law in the U.S.?
0: NEPA is the National Environmental Policy Act. It was uh, passed. In 1969 and signed into law by President Nixon in 1970. It is the foundational environmental law. A lot of other laws um, kind of function in conjunction with NEPA, but NEPA underlines a lot of environmental thinking and decision-making um, and efforts to consider how we're impacting the environment in the United States.
1: And then why is it called the Magna Carta of environmental law and why has it been emulated more than 190 times around the world.
0: So the Magna Carta was back in the Middle Ages in England, when the barons and the uh, uh, more wealthy aristocrats rose up and said to the king, king, you've got to give us a chance to have a voice in decision making. And what's so important about NEPA is that it was the first law that said, people need to have a right they need to have a right to say, to speak up, and to be involved in what happens to their environment. So prior to NEPA in the 1950s and 60s, you may hear about all of a sudden the federal government had had given permission for a highway, and big blocks of uh, you know homes and neighborhoods were just being raised for a highway, or there was another big project, and you know, the federal government had given a permission for a company to do something or they were themselves doing it and people had no say. And so NEPA is really amazing, it's foundational and it's been emulated around the world more than 190 times because it just has some very basic ideas. So the first idea is when the government is going to do something that could significantly impact the environment, the government needs to inform people. The second is, the government needs to say, here's what we intend to do and here's some uh, impacts, but let's, you know but they need to think of alternatives. They need to give people options. And then the third most important thing is people need a chance to say, share their concerns maybe to say, I think, I, I think you could do something a little bit differently. So just to sum that up, NEPA is foundational because it forces the government to inform the citizenry people in this country about any impact on their environment. And second, they can't just say, here's what we're going to do and we're going to do it and they have informed you. No, they have to say, here's what we're planning, but maybe we could do something a little differently. And then third and most importantly, people have a right to say, you know what, you didn't consider this. What about air pollution or what about the impact on water? You know, you have one plan, you have a backup plan, but I think you should have a third plan. So it's very important for that give and take.
1: All right, and I feel like some of our readers may not know, like how exactly they do. Are they able to have a voice within NEPA and be able to one of the be able to be one of those people who kind of gets to see the options and everything? Everybody can. Thank you for su- that's a really good suge-
0: uh, question. So absolutely, any citizen in, in the United States can can have a voice in this. The government. Um, is supposed to kind of make an announcement and it makes an announcement in something called the Federal Register. I bet a lot of us haven't heard of the Federal Register. It's sort of a daily publication of what's going on in the government. The government makes an announcement that there's a planned project and that there's gonna be an analysis and it says, you know, people can make comments. And the problem that I see in the work that I'm doing with my team here is that Even though the process of NEPA says people should be able to interact and to have comments, it's usually the people who are already in the know who do that. Most citizens in the United States, we don't have the habit of waking up and looking at the Federal Register along with, you know, our Twitter feed or anything else. And so my goal is to make it much easier for citizens in the United States to interact with NEPA and to be able to have their voice heard with decision-making about what happens to our environment.
1: And so why, I guess, is it important for the public to get involved in NEPA? Because we can really make a difference,
0: absolutely make a difference. So there's this great story a number of years ago about uh, an environmental impact assessment. So a lot of people have heard about that concept of environmental impact statements or, or environmental assessments, those are NEPA, right? So when the government wants to do a project, they have to do something called environmental impact assessment if they think there's going to be a major action, or excuse me, an environmental impact statement if there's going to be a, a major impact. And it's so important because sometimes even the super good scientists who are working on these statements, they can't see everything. So one of my favorite stories came, came out of uh, Los Alamos area of northern New Mexico. And there was a proposal to do some work at the Los Alamos Natural, National Laboratory, which is a famous laboratory, it does a lot of science, but it's also famous for, for working on um, nuclear engineering. And the proposal was to expand the, the project a little bit. And so they put their environmental impact statement, their, their, their draft statement out for public comment. And somebody in the community who had worked for the U.S. Forest Service came up and said, listen, you guys, you know, we have a lot of wildfire here. And this plan doesn't consider what could happen if there was a wildfire. And so the people who were writing the statement and and figuring out how to do this project backed up, said, let's consider this. They made a plan. Within a year of going forward with the project, there was a fire. But because they had been, you know, they had been drawn to their attention, they had a plan in place. And there were no big mishaps. There was no big damage to the National Laboratory. There was no Uh, you know, escape of pollution or contamination. It went, you know, it went very well. And so that's one of my favorite examples. Like the the citizens, we know stuff in this country. Sometimes if you're from an area, you kind of have a better sense of what's going on than maybe in an engineering company or a development company that was called in from, you know, from a different part of the country to do a project. So it's super important, super important.
1: Sounds like it. That's really interesting how it kind of worked with that example, how a fire did happen a few years later. Um, what was the most interesting thing you have found from working on this research?
0: The most interesting thing I have found, so I guess I'll just step back if I can. Can I uh, and just talk about what the research is a little bit? Yes. Okay, so we are, I mentioned earlier that I want to make it more accessible for the public. And so what my team has been doing and we're a really large team with everybody from the dean of the law school to undergraduates here at U of A. There's been probably 40 people over the last three years working on this project. We're trying to collect all information and documentation about Nipah. Nipah's 51 years old now. So we've been collecting all of that information. We're putting it together into a platform. Uh, We're using advanced data science, natural language processing, AI to make that information available. And then we're going to be doing a campaign of working with stakeholders and the public to understand that they can interact with NEPA. And we're making a platform that people can use to come and get information, and hopefully someday they'll be able to engage more. Um, And so what I have learned is just the importance of, well, two things, I guess, the importance of people getting involved. I teach a class where I teach students about this and they leave the class amazed. They never thought that their voice counted or that their voice mattered or can make an impact. And so that's one critical thing that I've learned. And then the other is that, you know, sometimes our laws get outdated and need to be updated. In other cases like Deepa was almost forward thinking. They they did this 51 years ago before there was data science, before people could do computers and do websites. And so it's, it's a, it was a very well thought out law, but almost ahead of its time. And so what I've learned is that it's, it's great to be able to work on it and to help bring things up to date, modernize it.
1: Very cool. And then what have been some challenges you have faced with your research of like, I guess, trying to get it out there of what NEPA is? Well, I think the main challenge that we face is that
0: it's somewhat obscure. I've read uh People say, you know, it's one of our most important but less, least known environmental laws. If you talk to people who care about conservation, they'll have heard of the Endangered Species Act or the Clean Water Act, Clean Air Act. NEPA is foundational. Um, it makes everybody stop and think. It's called the Look Before You Leap Law. It's so important. And yet, I would say most people don't know about it. Mm-hmm.
1: Um, and then how is the NEPA Access Project using data science to modernize NEPA?
0: So as I mentioned before, NEPA started before in the 1970s, before anybody really thought of the uh, internet or that, the idea that you could have a web-based platform where you could put information and people could give their comments. And so just bringing that idea to NEPA is helping to modernize it. Also, we're using data science to go back, there's a lot of information about what's happened to our environment in the United States over the last 50 years that's not accessible because the information was stored on papers and filing cabinets. And so part of what we're doing is we're getting that um, we're turning those PDFs into information that people can use now. If you wanted to go to your hometown and figure out what had happened over the last 50 years, you wouldn't have been able to do that very easily in the past. And so we're, we're using data science to make all that information, that old information accessible now and new. Um, we're also using data science to help it, uh, people understand, researchers understand you know, what's important to people, to get people's comments and their feelings about projects and to be able to you know, go the next step beyond a Yelp review or a movie review and, and, and figure out what people are trying to say and what their concerns are when they write something on social media or when they write something in a, in a comment.
1: Cool. an official
0: public comment.
1: Yeah. And then why are undergraduate student researchers critical to the success of the NEPA access project?
0: So I'll tell you two, I'll give you two answers. Um, and I'll start with that with one and then I'll go to the next, the most important one. There's a lot of work always on these sorts of projects and, and it just takes a huge team. And so we have been fortunate to have over 15, perhaps more undergraduate researchers over the last three years doing it. Um, And they just help us do a lot of the legwork. When you are writing an algorithm to try to understand some data, you have to have a human eye look at that first so that you know whether or not the machine learning is, is working. And so students have been really helpful doing that. But the most important thing is, I think it's really been inspirational for a lot of people, a lot of people who have heard about our project to talk to the undergrads on the team. This law was, is 50, 51 years old, it seems old to people. Um, it seems foundational to some po- folks and when they, and maybe a lot of people don't know about it. And so when people who've thought about this for a long time see the younger generation, you know, college students get excited about this. It, it's, it makes people know that there's a future in, in, in thinking about environmental issues in the US and decision-making and that, um, that there's young students who care and are gonna keep you know moving forward in their careers, becoming the decision makers themselves and making sure that we keep moving forward to both protecting our environment and, and making sure that we have the natural resources as a society to keep moving forward. Sure. So it offers hope. Yeah. The students offer hope and excitement and passion.
1: Um, and then what is your favorite memory from working on this type of research?
0: My favorite memory? It's it's seeing the big team. Now that we're in the Zoom world, I like looking at the Zoom board and seeing everybody's faces. You know, we have a meeting and we have maybe 30 people in the meeting everywhere from very, you know, esteemed and famous professors and the dean of the law school to undergraduates. I love that. And when you look on the board, everybody's face, the tile is all the same size. And it just lets me know that we're all so important to doing this work. I think when we go back to meeting in person, I'm going to miss that part of the, of zoom the zoom world and the pandemic
1: world we will be right back after a word from our sponsor welcome daily wildcat listeners to the wildcat weekly recap podcast this weekly news podcast will highlight and bring you up to date on all university of arizona news you may have missed in the last week i'm your host maggie rockwell assistant news and science editor and i'll keep you informed and in the know listen on spotify apple podcasts and anywhere you stream This is a Daily Wildcat news production online all the time at dailywildcat.com. And then we're going to move into kind of the backstory portion. Uh, When did you realize this was the career you wanted to go into and what experiences led to you choosing this field of work?
0: So I mentioned earlier that I come from a family of people who've been working on science, conservation, and environmental issues for, for a long time. And I kind of always knew that. What I have in my family, though, is sort of half people who had been in research and education and and uh, working with NGOs, you know, back 150 years. But I also have grandparents who were both farmers and ranchers. And so I know that that you have to protect the environment, but also protect people. Mm-hmm. And what I like about NEPA is that it doesn't say in the end, after you've listened to everybody and gotten people's feedback, it doesn't say you have to take the most environmentally preferred alternative the thing that's least impactful it says that hopefully by having laid out all of the impacts having considered people's opinions we will have reached a decision that is better for both people and the environment and that's what I take from my sort of uh, I guess background is knowing that you have to consider both.
1: Okay. Well I come from an agriculture background so that's very interesting that they kind of rule at the end or not rule kind of a suggestion um and then what was your education journey like well
0: i um went to high school and i told you before the interview started the most important thing that i learned in high school was that five paragraph essay if you can write a five paragraph persuasive essay you can almost do anything you can write a grant proposal you can write a college application you can um make a speech and that was Just that I think that was fundamental from high school Uh, from there, I went to college, I studied both ecology and also I had the opportunity to study, I was I went to college at Princeton. And at that point in time it had one of the few schools of public policy that undergraduates could study in and I did that both in ecology, and then I went to graduate school and I got a PhD I did postdocs. We often do those in science. And then and here I am, I've been at University of Arizona for 13 years now.
1: And then what were some challenges you faced going into the field?
0: So like I mentioned earlier, I do work that's interdisciplinary. I, 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 am a, I was trained as a basic biologist, but I do work that thinks about law and policy, um, thinks about how to make certain government governance processes work better. That's very interdisciplinary. I got that as an undergraduate because I did a double major, but my PhD was in a a regular sort of straight science field. There weren't that many interdisciplinary degree programs available when I was young. And um, I think it's exciting to see now that students have more options.
1: And then what was the work experience like going into this field? I know with the pandemic, a lot of students are worried about work after They're done with college. So kind of what was your experience with work after you got
0: your PhD? I am somewhat embarrassed to say that I've always been in academia, Jillian. So I went from high school to college to graduate school to postdoc. So I've never I I've never I was never out sort of in the hustle and bustle trying to get jobs like I know some of you guys are. Um so I, I don't know if that I have much to answer on that question.
1: That works perfectly because I mean, there's students who are, I feel like that happens a lot with researchers as you go right into like just working on your research and everything. So I have a lot of friends who are like worried about getting into like their graduate school that they want to go into and stuff like that. So.
0: Yeah. And I know even that is hard now. It's hard to find positions.
1: What mentors have you had that Um, had a significant impact on your life and what is it like being a mentor now?
0: I've mentioned this uh, five paragraph essay. I'm really very grateful for my senior year of high school English teacher who was so hard on us. I think the first essay that we all wrote in class, he gave us all Cs. I remember going into the hallway out of the class, everybody just clutching their papers and really upset about the grade and not realizing that while we were good students, we still had room for improvement. I, that's, I think, as I look back on that lesson, I, I, I think probably we all did a good job, but he gave us C's because he wanted us to know that we had room for improvement. And that's always, um, that's been an important lesson for me is you can, you know, step back anytime you have a disappointment, you get a rejection in one way or the other, step back and think about, okay, well, what did I learn from this and how could I improve? Um, and so that was an early mentor who, he didn't take me a a, a long aside, like one-on-one, but that was a really important lesson. I've had mentors all throughout my career from college to graduate school, to you know, even being a faculty member. I really like mentoring students as well, giving them a few tips here and there, kind of helping them understand that you can pop up from a failure. You can learn that, you turn that into a learning lesson. Um, helping them avoid some of the mistakes that I made is one of the, you know, one of my, if, 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 it, if, I, if people have to make mistakes, but if I can help you avoid the ones that I made, I, you know, I like to do that. And so that you can go off and make another mistake and learn from that.
1: Very good. And then what projects are you planning on doing in the future? So this project that we're working on NEPA access, it, de-
0: it definitely has a timeline. We expect to do it for, a few more years and that at some point it'll get turned over either to an entity in the federal government like the Library of Congress, or perhaps to a consortium of university libraries that can run it as a service for the people of the United States. Um, and so we expect, I expect that we'll be doing this maybe for another three to five more years. And then then you know, we'll have created something and then we'll hand it off and hopefully it will be a public good. Um, after that, I'll have to look for my next project.
1: Cool, that's exciting. Um, And then, is there any advice you would give to students who are interested in pursuing a career in natural resources?
0: Not to forget the human side. I talked to a lot of students, well, let me step back. I talked to a lot of people who are sort of at my stage and a lot of them say, you know, I started off because I wanted to work with animals or save a certain landscape. And so I studied biology. And I got a job and I'm working for an NGO, which is like an environmental organization, or maybe I'm working for Forest Service, they tell me, and I'm working with people and I'm working with laws and policies. And so for students who really want to make an impact, your science, your basic science, biology class, you know, geoscience, all of that's really important. But take some classes in the School of Government and Public Policy, take a class, from the law school, if you can Uh, take a class from anthropology or sociology, take a class in English and learn how important it is to be able to communicate or to write a short story or a poem about what you care about because people are part of the equation. We're not gonna protect natural resources, save species from going endangered, tackle climate change without realizing that people are really an important part of the equation. Mm And then just learn how to communicate
1: that well. That's really good advice. (laughs) And then is there anything that we didn't talk about today that you would like to speak about? I've heard from students lately
0: in my classes that they're worried sort of about the state of the world. And I would urge people, if you ever have that concern, to take a step back and to look at the trajectory of history. There's a thinker... uh, writer a professor at harvard stephen pinker he has the same opinion you know take a step back look at the trajectory don't look at just now and think about how the world is improving so because i came from a family of environmental scientists i can't even remember the first time that i heard about or thought about global warming that's what it was called back then in the greenhouse effect and I've heard students say we're not making any progress, and i And I think to myself, we make so much progress. Back when I was a kid, you know, ten years old, it was only a certain group of scientists were thinking about it, not the general public. And now we have so many people. We have, uh, you know, I would if I start naming people, I would I would miss important thinkers. But there's so many people around the world who are thinking about it. We have companies, car companies, who are going to be going all electric. Um, we have, you know. Greta talking about this and we just, its we're making progress, we really are. And just step back and think about it. And if you, if you are young and you think things aren't improving, talk to your grandparents, talk to somebody who's seen a lot and ask them what life was like 50 years ago. You know, 50 or 60 years ago, the air quality in the Bay Area where I went to graduate school was terrible. It was good by the time I got there. And so just ask somebody about that. And I think you'll see that we really are Moving forward, a lot of things are improving. Um, it's every generation building on the work of the next.
1: Thank you for sharing that. I know a lot of students who feel overwhelmed thinking about like climate change and kind of how to help and with like just the world in general, what to do. So thank you for sharing that. I'm sure that will help a lot of students. Well. If I have just a last
0: word, that's awesome though, right? That so many people are aware. I mean, we had problems in the past, but maybe people weren't aware of those problems. They were sort of swept under the rug or there weren't journalists who were reporting on it. So the fact that students are thinking and seeing lots of problems just means that we're now recognizing them and that there's something to work on. You can't work on a problem if you don't recognize it. So that's, I I think that's great. When I hear people like you say that, I think it's just
1: great. Behind the Beaker is a Daily Wildcat podcast created by Alexandra Perry. The Daily Wildcat, online, all the time, at dailywildcat.com. Thank you to Laura Lopez-Hoffman and everyone involved in this podcast, including science editor Amit Sayal, managing editor and producer Pascal Albright, Udbab Venkatraman, The Science Desk, and Arizona Student Media. Behind the Beaker is a podcast about the unbelievable science and even more unbelievable scientists behind it at the University of Arizona. For more UA science stories, visit dailywildcat.com or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram at dailywildcat. As well, check out our Twitter at Beaker Behind for sneak peeks of episodes and to see pictures of the research talked about in the episodes. This has been Behind the Beaker, a daily wildcat podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, comment, and rate our show.